cliffcentral.com. All right, we are live. It is the Burning Platform. Thursdays is what we do. We check in on all the big stories of the week. We've got a full quotient today of all the main players. We have Pumi Mashiro, we have Canton Pele, we have me, and we've got Professor Anthony Turton on the line. Hi, Prof. How are you? Good morning to you, the listeners. Good to be with you today. So it's very nice to have you back. Let me just remind everybody, you are a prominent hydrologist and environmental scientist. You've dedicated your career to advancing water resource management and your advocacy for sustainable water practices and your ability to bridge the gap between science and policy have made you, certainly in our opinion, a respected authority, shaping water management strategies in Africa and beyond. So... I've been waiting to talk to you about this since I woke up this morning, and I already told Pumi and Canton that this is what I was going to do. So, Prof, I live um, in a – I've, I've put a lot of money into this house. I've got a nice house. I've also put solar on the roof, so I don't have to worry about electricity. I, I mean, despite the fact that we had a power outage for like four days, so I didn't have hot, hot water in my house. These are like first-world problems. But I suddenly came face-to-face with the third world this morning when I woke up, and I thought – I don't know why, but Donald Trump popped into my head and he, he was saying to me, yeah, you do live in a shithole. <laughs> because I woke up, I was having dreams, nightmares of being at an event like the one I went to last night and smelling shit. Like literal, I, I, was, I smelt in my dreams, I was smelling like this disgusting smell. And my dreams... In the dream, the organizer of the event was saying, I'm so sorry, this place is so disgusting. We'll do it somewhere else next year. And I suddenly woke up and thought, hang on a second. This isn't a dream. I live next to the Henops River. And this morning, I woke up to the smell of an open sewer flowing right past my house. You know when everything in the air is fetid? It's the only way to describe it. I, I, was, I was suddenly both horrified I mean, I was relieved that it wasn't a dream, that I wasn't dreaming about bad smells, because that would be a sign of sure psychopathy on the way. <laughs> but when I realized what it was, that I was living next to the most polluted river in the country, and that no matter what I did, or how much money I made, or how I tried to improve my life, thanks to the mismanagement of that open sewer outside my house, I will never be able to invite people to my house again. I will not be able to live happily there and I will probably die prematurely because of breathing in all this filth that flows right outside my house. And I suddenly realized, like, I've got to move. That's what I've got to do. So I've actually got to sell the place I love and I've got to move. You know what I'm talking about, right, Prof? Absolutely. The smell you describe is the smell of collapsing civilization. Uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, civilization as we know it today was built on urbanization, and that was driven by the Romans who learned the very important lesson of getting water into uh, uh, some urban settlement and then getting the wastewater out. So uh, the uh, literally the foundation of, of, of civilization is the ability to move your human excrement out of your settlement in a safe way because that's the only way you can keep people living closer together without getting sick. And when that collapses, then you, you're, the, the very essence of your civilization is no longer there. That's why civil engineers are called civil engineers because civilization is based on that. Sure. All right. Well, there we are. The collapse of civilization. And I, I got to... St- sense that in a very real way this morning.
Well, I'm 500 meters can I, away from can the Yurtskaya. Can I just relate to story? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, can I relate can, to story? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Prof. Can I relate to story? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's an important story that happened. Uh, I can't remember the exact year, but it was in the 1800s uh, when the Thames River it, it became like, like your river next door. Mm. And uh, the, the river was so disgustingly bad because all the sewage was discharged into the Thames River mm. uh, that it was called the Big Stink. Mm -hmm. And it was got so bad, bad that the Houses of Parliament had to actually shut down. You know, the, the, the British Parliament could not uh, survive uh, the, the bad smell. And that then gave rise to very, very uh, uh, sweeping legislative reform. And from that moment onwards, you started getting the first uh, 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 engineered sewers uh, uh, been put into the city of, uh, of of London, and that was rapidly followed by a very famous engineer called Hausmann. Uh, Hausmann uh, in Paris, he did exactly the same thing in Paris. And in Paris, if you go to uh, the Etoile, the the, uh, the Champs Elysees, right next to Champs Elysees, there's mm. a place called Hausmann Boulevard, and that's uh, that's in honour of that Hausmann. So literally, uh, you know, the foundation of these major cities of the world today uh, is all based on uh, on uh, on this sort of type of engineering. And in fact, if you go into the Islamic world, the Muslim world, there they've got a thing that comes from the original Persia, and that's called a Khanat. And a khanat is, a, is an engineered system. It's an engineered system of tunnels that basically follows the water table uh, from a wadi all the way up to the source of the water. And that is a communal water resource, extremely uh, sophisticated in its engineering. And uh, that that was then uh, uh, basically uh, brought into the entire uh, uh, Arab world. So the, the whole Arab world is based on on a khanat system. And, and, and Arab uh, Sharia law, in fact, has got a lot of this kind of thing uh, built into it about who's got what rights and you know, how you must protect the water and what have you. And I'll just say one more thing, that uh, when we became a democracy in 1994, I had the privilege of working closely with Carter Oswell at the time. And uh, so he was the, the man that drove our water law reform. And uh, I had many, many conversations with him. And the one point that I always took home uh, after such a meeting was that the purpose of the National Water Act is to rehabilitate rivers, to prevent rivers from becoming open sewers. That's what Carter Osmal would say to, uh, say to me on a regular basis in private conversations. Mm. Well, God bless and him. How, He's no longer here. But also, how much of that have they achieved? The silence tells you everything. Okay, Canton, you were going to say you, you live near the Yuxke. Yes, I'm 500 meters away from the Yuxke. And <clears throat> every day, it, it, it's, it's actually fascinating watching the trajectory of the Yuxke because you guys know that uh, it starts somewhere around Bertrams, mm. um, goes through into, into Bruma, and then, you know, travels up through there. Uh, and then it passes Alex. And at the point at which it passes Alex is where it gets filled with a massive amount of, well, just about everything, and then it flows past Babies. my, yeah. and then it flows, and then it flows past my neighbourhood, and from my neighbourhood, it then flows on to waterfall. And what's interesting is when the Yuxke gets to the uh, to waterfall, there are these traps to catch all of the rubbish that's going down there, and then they proceed to purify it in various ways. So there's a Baldwin development that's uh, in the close vicinity of my neighborhood that actually has an artificial lagoon mm -hmm. that is filled with waters from the Yuxke that then ends up getting purified. <laughs> and, well, and, and people actually go and swim in it. You, you know, yeah. you, you say that yesterday, and we started at the beginning of the show, I was telling Gareth, I was at, um, at Victoria Yards, and they have a very sophisticated uh, water system there that they and and a big part of that water station 
is actually managed by the UJ and another international body. And because even at that point, just after its source, the, the amount of pollution that's in the river already in Laurentville is already so high. And they've been doing quite a lot of work kind of just cleaning up the, the river and checking and reintroducing the biomes around that river. I was astounded to see even just looking at the color of the river coming past there, literally less than a kilometer from source. It's already a putrid little thing. And it's, it was quite an, an, an interesting and fascinating thing to, to watch and hear about because there's, there's a lot of conversa conversation, conservation happening at that part of the river as well. But also to realize that at various points along the river, all the way down to, I think it goes through Mozambique to get to the sea. Where does it go through? No, the, it the, joins. Um, I, I think these all feed into the crocodile, yeah. and then the crocodile and the feeds crocodile into the Limpopo, into yeah. the Limpopo eventually, and uh, yeah, and then and then it, yeah. mm -hmm. So so Which, uh, so, Prof. I mean, let's just because we we do want to get onto municipal water, and I mean, Pumi and many other people in Joburg have had no water for a couple of days, sometimes weeks. In the past two weeks, Joburg water has shown various parts of Johannesburg flames. Yeah, so or lack of so so I, we we'll get to the municipal situation in a second. But since you you know we're talking about rivers, uh, why are we so piss poor at managing our rivers? And and what is the ultimate? What is the result of all of this to the ecology? What is the result of this to our sustainable water reserves? Because we can't have dams filled with sewage; otherwise, we can't use them. I mean, what do you make of all of this? Yeah, that's uh, well, the story about the Yuxka is a very interesting story. In fact, the Yuxka is a metaphor for the city of Johannesburg because the Yuxka was the very first river that provided water mm. to the early, early, early settlers uh, in, in uh, Johannesburg. The source of the Yuxka River is now underground. It's, it's under landfill and what have you, but it's actually uh, uh, at the Ellis Park Stadium. Ellis Park mm. Stadium is built over the source of the Yuxka, and it's then trapped in, uh, in stormwater drains. And of course, all of the hijacked buildings in Bez Valley, Bertrams, that sort of area, uh, the, those hijacked buildings have all got uh, broken sewage structures, and uh, th those sewers are directed straight into the river. So by the time the river now sees the first light of day before uh, before Bez Valley, before before Bezadeno Park. Uh, that's the first time it sees the light of day. And at that point in time, it's already heavily contaminated, not only by sewage, but also by all kinds of recreational drug, uh, drugs, because there's all sorts of, of recreational drug use uh, in, in that part of the country. So it is an absolute cocktail of, uh, of, of everything in society. So you can literally use the Yuxke River as a barometer for the health of the city of Johannesburg, and you can use our national rivers as the health of uh, of South Africa as a nation, because uh, because water is a foundation of, uh, of of all of our economic uh, well-being. It's a foundation of our national food security, but it's literally the foundation of our economic. I think we've, I lost know, we've frozen there a bit, Prof. Uh, okay, so let's get let's get to the municipal stuff because he'll he'll come back in a second. What do what do we? What do we glean from this? The the water He's affairs back. department. Uh, Prof, sorry, we lost you for a second there. Okay, Just yeah, it again. happens. I live in I live in a remote part of KZN. It happens. <laughs> um, uh, 
Okay, so so what you see now in, uh, in 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 the case of Johannesburg is systemic failure, and uh, in a sentence, uh, what we've had is uh, inappropriate solutions uh, uh, provided uh, or applied to uh, uh, incorrectly diagnosed problems. That really, in one sentence, is what we see seeing in South Africa. And there's a whole lot of, 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 of issues around that because, firstly, because we don't diagnose the problems correctly, and there's actually, I believe it's deliberate, uh, uh, because if you diagnose the problem correctly, what you're then going to do is apply an appropriate solution, which is generally the most cost-effective solution, and that means that nobody can feed at the trough. So I believe that the that the, uh, the failure to diagnose the problems, what is known as a root cause analysis, really lies at the, at the at the heart of all of this. So if you don't know what it is that you need to fix, you can look very very busy. You can look. You can take a whole lot of credit for kicking up a lot of dust and smoke and saying, "But look at what we're doing. We're throwing three billion rand at this problem." And oh, you know, the problems are with so you know we blame it on the past or we blame it on somebody else or we shift the blame onto the consumer, but we never take responsibility because the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity for the for for people feeding at the trough. And this, I'm afraid, is actually at the heart of the uh, of our water dilemma in the country. And of course, in the case of Johannesburg, you must remember that this is the final financial capital hmm. of South Africa and the financial capital of the continent of Africa. And uh, what's very interesting is that there's been a net out-migration uh, out from the city center uh, to the, the new center, Santon, the new financial center, and then out to Midrand, etc. And the same thing's happening in Durban, near Tequini, exactly the same thing, you know. The new Santon there is in Flunga Rocks as the city, the inner city decays, and eventually it's going to get to a point where it can no longer sustain itself and it's going to crash and burn. So that's where we are. We are we are seeing systemic failure, and 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 and, and infrastructure consists of two parts. There's a soft infrastructure and the hard infrastructure. So the hard infrastructure, the pumps, the pipes, the concrete, uh, and the machinery, the dams and reservoirs, <clears throat> that is no longer fit for purpose. That has not been upgraded in the last quarter of a century. Uh, so we've lost all of what is known as buffering capacity. Uh, we need to have at least a 48 hours buffering capacity in the system. That's been lost a long time ago. But of course, the big failure is in the soft infrastructure. And the soft infrastructure are the institutions. The institutions, the, the decision-making processes, who speaks to who, who reports what problem to who, how does it get recorded, uh, how, do, how, do, how does that data that's recorded now become what is known as a trends analysis? How do you use that trends analysis to project into the future what is likely to happen and therefore to direct your uh, the, the deployment of your resources? And I, I go no further than to point uh, fingers at the current a leadership impasse within the municipality where there, there's a very, very weak mayor, a very, very weak uh, uh, fraud coalition government squabbling amongst themselves about who's going to get what portfolio. I can guarantee you not one of those people has got the slightest technical acumen to even to begin to comprehend the magnitude and complexity of the problem, yet they are expected to direct resources and, and, and build teams and, you know, and give instructions as to what must be done over the next 10 to 20 years into the future. They just haven't got a clue. And this is the problem. Jeez. We're seeing systemic failure. All right. So Prof, a couple of weeks ago, there, there was quite a big song and dance 
made by Johannesburg Water about them upgrading. Do you remember this, Canton? About them upgrading a whole lot of piping systems. They, they We had a, a, a 48-hour shutdown because they were bringing on stream a whole new set of systems and pipes. And it, it's been, and, and they've been digging up all sorts of places and, and they really did go on a PR junket around this. So are you saying all of that was just smoke and mirrors and none of the of these necessary upgrades, um, maintenance and stuff was done. It's just PR. I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a statement now that <laughs> society begins to collapse the moment that politicians believe their own hubris. So when you are no longer able to distinguish fact from hubris, when you believe your own propaganda, that's when things start to go wrong. So, so uh, in engineered systems. Oh, there's that uh, that KZN there's bump that, <laughs> that, uh, that the prof was talking about. Okay, so I d- because I mean, they, they, there was an enormous amount of PR pumped around this this particular issue, and they were they were like shutting down, and they were digging up everywhere and they were putting in new pipes and this and this and this. And and to hear what Prof is saying now, Prof, and I think Prof is back. Do you want to finish your thought and then... Yeah, yeah I just want to say that, you know, because infrastructure is built incrementally over time, uh, it's not just a question of digging up one trench and putting one pipe in. That one pipe is is, is part of a very complex uh, system. And ultimately, you've got to do certain things. So, so let's quickly analyze what those things are. You've got to get water from a river, which is like hundreds of kilometers away. You've got to then uh, uh, put it through a, a network that's tens of thousands of kilometers long. You've got to uh, place it in a number of reservoirs and, and water towers to give you pressure. Those are all over the show. And then you've got to take it from those reservoir systems into into each and every house uh, to to supply water. Then you've got to collect the wastewater coming out the other side and 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 process that and put it back in the very same river that you've taken your you know, your, your your original water from. So that's what's got to happen. So there are hundreds and hundreds of transactions along the way. And of course, what's uh, what has now happened is that all of our pipes in general are, are 50, 80, maybe 100, some even 120 years old. And uh, those pipes are old and broken and, you know, and, and, and corroded. And, and uh, consequently, at least 50% of the water provided by, by Rand Water into the city of Johannesburg is lost immediately to leaks or what is called unaccounted for water. It could be even as high as 60%. And uh, you know, so, that, so that, that's the one factor. Then the second fact is because it's built incrementally over time, uh, you can't just suddenly make a decision. Let's just let's just call a meeting now, and we're going to make a decision that that tomorrow we are going to end this water crisis. You can't just do that. That this is hubris now. See, this is the this is the the song and dance of the you know about look at look here and look here, but you know it's it's going on behind you. Um, you can't do that because you've got to plan accordingly. And I mean, for example, there's a plan now suddenly afoot to link all of the reservoirs together. Well, they already are linked together, but they link together with uh, with what is known as you now there's a certain logic to it, and the logic there means that the water flows in one direction. One direction only. Now, now, if you want to link them together to basically bleed water from one to the other, you've now got to reverse that flow. Sounds simple on paper. Uh, a, a, board, a board can make a decision just like that. We will reverse the flow. But now <laughs> you've got to document. actually reverse the flow. 
now you want to actually go and reverse the flow and you've actually got to pull out these pumps you know the motors are maybe maybe 500 kilowatt motors you know these things weigh weigh five tons each you want to have cranes you've got to, so you've got to have electricity first and and we don't even have you've that got to have so you know uh, i mean all right prof it's, 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 Everybody's everybody's talking about uh, water shedding, just like we've had load shedding since you brought up electricity. Um, what what do you think that means? What does that look like for ordinary citizens in our supposedly civilized urban centres? Well, we've already experienced it. One of the first times that I uh, that I ever, ever experienced water shedding was, in fact, in a, a very upmarket uh, restaurant area in uh, in the north of Johannesburg, where uh, I had scheduled a meeting with somebody, and suddenly we couldn't go there because they couldn't wash the dishes in the restaurant, and therefore there was this big problem now. Okay, so the first water shedding I've experienced in, in, in South Africa was in Johannesburg, and it was probably over maybe a decade and a half ago. So, so water shedding is what happens when 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 an entire system gets shut down or a subsystem gets shut down. Now, unlike unlike Eskom, where you don't have enough electricity, so you want to distribute it over a large uh, uh, population of users, uh, water is not quite the same because you don't have a centralized distribution network. So water shedding and load shedding is not quite the same. Typically, water shedding happens when you've got a, an acute localized crisis within a municipality. There's not enough water to go around. So they, so, so either the, the reservoirs run dry, in which case you simply lose pressure first, and then and eventually you get nothing, or they might throttle it back to try and squeeze as much water out over a longer period of time. But that's not really water shedding because you know, you, you, you're not distributing a limited amount of water over, over competing users. You're simply restricting the flow to the, to the end users. It's it's not good because remember, remember at the end of the day, we are talking now only about the inconvenience to the user, to the human being. What always goes missing in every one of these conversations is what about the person running a factory that employs a thousand people? Yeah. What do they do? What about the factory that that, that, that is producing food, for example, mm -hmm. that needs uh, to have that water for human hygiene? Yeah. So it, it, it has health implications and a bunch of other kinds of implications too. Um, I want to ask the prof in a second about this term water crowding. But I, I just have to say, uh, while we're waiting for, for the, the internet the connection to improve here, so a lot of this is about uh, the people who are supposed to manage this stuff, the government, the officials that we elect that are paid. Uh, they're not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. There supposedly is a Department of Water and Sanitation. We seem to have a problem with both of those at the moment. Um, but how much of this is also about us? Like, if we well, that's are, where we get we, to the solutions, Gareth. Well, and, no, and, but, but yeah. what, what I mean is like part of the problem is us because it seems to me that a lot of people in South Africa are quite happy to throw their rubbish into rivers. A lot of people in this country seem to be quite happy to live in places where the sewerage is damming up. And, and maybe it's not that they're happy to be living like that, but they, they are. They've contented themselves with it. And I wonder if this is not the same apathy Pumi and I were talking about with regard to students before this, people just go, mm, oh, well, this is how what it can is. I do? This but is a, but it is, it is a government. question of that actually becoming imbued in our culture, and we haven't been taking steps to do that. So compare and contrast with Rwanda as an example, where there are real consequences to littering. Yeah. And you actually have these civic task forces that go out to clean up neighborhoods. And it's something that has now become ingrained in that society over the past couple of decades. So it's an active process of training. And Gareth, it, it goes back to your earlier thing about teaching civics at school. Mm -hmm. You know, that's part of the stuff that needs to be taught. 
Now, I certainly don't know of any case where you've actually taught kids about the importance of picking up litter or cleaning up after yourself Listen, or, or actually just, following the trail. You know, and my advertising bone will always say, or oh, just a good old PSA. Yeah, zap it in the ZB. Public service announcements. <coughs> because there, there are so many different ways of being in South Africa being so so different, where we've got cities, we've got rural areas and people coming in between all of those places really to create a collective consciousness of how to be in all of these environments. You got to tell people, you got to teach people, whether it's a radio ad or a TV ad or print, whatever. Yeah. You teaching know, teaching got, people doesn't work. PSAs. Okay? You need to have consequences. And, yeah, uh, I'm with you. And, uh, people need to go to jail. And at the point at which you actually have fines yeah. for littering, you know, again, the Singapore business model where, yeah. you know, uh, chewing gum on the streets, ah, immediately they are. Uh, well, you, yeah, you, you set up, you set up, up you, uh, courts and caravans. They seem to be able to do it with Metro Police. <laughs> yes. You know, but, yeah. but, but again, that goes back to the conversation that we had with the mayor in terms of. Uh, mm. you know, the, the, the former mayor, yes. Popalatze, not the current Neopre mayor. Yeah. All right. So now, now, interestingly, yeah, I just want to pick up on what Pumi was saying earlier around the song and dance that's been happening. Now, here's something very interesting. You might remember when we had Popalatze in studio, mm -hmm. and I showed her the video of the bridge over the Yuxke that flows uh, in my neighborhood and how that bridge had been completely trashed. Yes. And for the entire DA administration, you know, we kept nagging and that bridge was not repaired. Yeah. Um, about three weeks ago, under this current useless mayor that we have, that bridge was repaired. Oh. And it was properly done. Let's just take so, a minute. Yeah. Okay. So that, so, and again, I was completely gobsmacked. So that, that's point number one. The second thing is that I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a <clears throat> massive number of potholes that have actually been repaired over the past few weeks. Okay. So all of the potholes in my neighborhood, for example, have actually been repaired. Who lives in your neighborhood? There is no Which one. Which one of them lives in no, your no, neighborhood? No, no, there's no one special that lives in, in my neighborhood, but I'm actually seeing that pattern through most of Johannesburg. There, there's been a massive number of these um, maintenance projects that are actually taking place. The, uh, Do you know why? Uh, yeah, the mic one. Well, let's get to that in a second. You might have noticed that there's been major work going on in terms of trimming the verges and just cleaning up the rubbish and all of that over the past couple of weeks. Have you guys noticed this? Because, I haven't, but okay, uh, it's I believe you. Yeah, it's caused traffic chaos, but it's actually real work that's been, uh, that's been happening. So my suspicion is that there's actually a budget that needs to be spent ah. in, uh, in a relatively short space of time, and uh, that money is actually being farmed out. I assume that their cadres were actually eating but, you know, that's fine. From my point of view, the crucial thing is that stuff is actually happening. Hmm. Now, this is not going to address all the problems that uh, Prof. Turton was talking about because the fact is that one of the reasons why we have these water issues is something like 40 to 50% of our water just leaks out into the ground because mm -hmm. of, of pipes that have actually not been updated. And so if we're going to look for solutions, I think – Boreholes become one of the things. But then, Gareth, the next point is, how do you get to the stage where you're able to actually purify stuff on a, uh, let's say, an industrial uh, level? Mm -hmm. And I think that the solution to that, again, becomes electricity. Because if you have an abundant supply of electricity, 
then you can actually start investing in ozone generation. And at the point at which you're doing ozone generation, that is the most effective way of purifying um, the environment. So, I mean, the reason why you don't have stink in the Japanese subways is because they actually very carefully filter ozone through into the underground railway system so that the air is constantly purified. You know that that's smell of fresh air after a thunderstorm? Yeah, that's ozone. Yeah, yeah that, that's ozone, basically. So Oxygen is uh, yeah, so struck by lightning effect. So essentially, I think, you know, as individuals, if we're taking a view, um, and as, you know, solar technology and battery technology keeps getting cheaper, electricity becomes cheaper, that then creates an environment where I think you're going to be in a position to have your neighborhood then start putting in place ozone generators that are actually um, powered by whatever generational infrastructure you've got there so that you clean up your section of the river. And I think that's going to be the business model for South Africa going forward because we can't rely on the state no. to be doing any of this stuff. So no, that's how we fix it. Look, mm. I, I always like it when you start talking like this. Um, and, and I hope, Prof, that you you concur with me on that. No, I know Pumi was nodding along too. <clears throat> but are there any solutions? Are there any solutions or is this all just gloom and doom? Is Canton right? Uh, there, are many, there are many solutions. So can I just quickly make a, one or two points there? So firstly, we need to understand that the mayor and the minister, etc., that that level of our society, that cohort of society, is in the top 2% of salary earners in the country. Let that sink in. The top 2% of salary earners, they earn salaries over 2 million rand a month, plus perks and benefits, etc. So let's understand that, okay? Then the, the next thing we need to understand is there was a once upon a time, there was a company called Eskom. And Eskom used to produce the cheapest electricity in the world. I don't know if you know that. The yep. cheapest electricity in the world was used to be produced by Eskom. So let's not forget about that. And the third thing now is uh, uh, the, the lesson that we've learned now from the energy crisis is you can no longer rely on the state. Exactly yeah. what Cantum said. No, you can't rely on the state. That's that's where we trap. We trap to think that that the government the government must give us all of these things. So so that's not happening. Now I'll give you an example. <clears throat> uh, three three years ago. Um, uh, Mr. Gwede Montash made a statement to the effect that it is illegal to sell electricity into the national grid. And if you do it, you're going to get arrested. Three years later, people are selling electricity into the grid because the crisis has been so great that it's overwhelmed the system. And as a result of that, now you're now seeing the resurgence of public of public uh, uh, entities that are or publicly funded entities that are now relieving the the pressure on uh, on, the, on the grid. You mentioned Cliff that you've got uh, or Gareth that you mentioned that you've got your solar panels on your roof. Well, in so doing, you're contributing to the people of Alex there because you are you are not using electricity that so that they can use that which you are not using and that is already happening and i've seen some very sophisticated number crunching happening and and that suggests that in the not too distant future eskim will cease to be relevant eskim will only be relevant in the sense that that that, that the uh, the distribution network will matter and that's what's going to that as simple as that, that that's what's happening so Every, everyone everyone in the country starts enthusiastically so nodding. the question is yeah. now prof how do we do that for water as well yeah. Well, okay. So, so water. I think what's going to happen is you're going to start seeing the emergence of public-private partnerships (PPPs), and uh, these things are going to come uh, come on force as independent service providers or independent uh, uh, water providers, just like you're going to get independent energy providers. 
So the blueprint is happening in Eskim, and it's going to immediately be uh, be followed in water. And I mean, there, there are many examples. I, I'll just give an example now of one of the biggest bits of real estate development in the country, which is around Mklonga Ridge, uh, north of Durban. Mm. They they've got a major crisis now, just like just like Johannesburg. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a prime mm. piece of real estate. Billions of rands are invested into. We hit the we hit yeah. the KZN skids again. <laughs> All right, uh, Pums, you wanted well, to you wanted no, to bring well, up something while while Canton was talking. Prof is, is actually bringing up. I mean, because we're Joburg based, we're having a very deeply Joburg conversation. Yeah, of but the, the same thing applies in Umslanga as Prof is bringing it up, and we keep seeing it. You know, at the Durban beachfront, the the pictures that we see coming onto the social networks. What's happening at the water treatment plant in Umsanga is horrifying. And so it's not just a Joburg problem. It seems to be a problem that's well, intermediated all over the country. And my question, Prof, now that you're back on, is how do we, in all of these various parts of the country, how can we, the citizens, kind of do something about it if we can do anything about it and what is required to fix the problem? The first thing you've got to do is we're living in a democracy, so use your vote judiciously. That's the one bit of power that you have. Vote correctly. Vote for the people that are going to give you the services that you need. If you continue to vote for the same old people, you're going to get the same old outcome, and then you mustn't complain about what's going to happen. That's the first thing. The second thing is never lose hope. There is always hope. And in fact, these uh, catastrophes that we are going through at the moment ultimately cause a, a fundamental uh, change in the structure of society. Uh, society Society very often doesn't collapse as a result of this, although it's very inconvenient at the uh, at the at the moment that it's happening. But 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 the uh, society emerges on the other side as a better thing. So I think we we are going to start seeing a major restructuring of society here. And the important thing is that the ruling party at the moment today they're in power, but they're no longer in control. So we've got to understand that the illusion of control is not the same as the reality of control. So we're living in a world of illusion, and the reality, you know, one's going to take a big bite of the reality sandwich after 2024, I think. So so, so this is where we're going to start seeing a lot of solutions coming out, but never ever lose hope because uh, every one of these problems are technically soluble and they're very often being solved at local level. All right. So one last thing before we let you go, Prof, uh, the flooding in the Western Cape. I mean, what we've got here is, and it happened in KZN not so long ago too, we've also had intermittent floods in Johannesburg from time to time. Is this because our drainage infrastructure, which is part of water, it's part of sanitation, it's certainly part of managing water, are these systems also in serious decline? And are these signs that not just the environment is particularly uh, hostile to us in some ways and shapes and forms, and perhaps you could say that a lot of that has to do with the way we've managed that environment, but are, are the systems that we have in place to take care of floods uh, outdated. Do we need to look at those too? Well, the quick the quick answer to that is yes, absolutely, um, uh, absolutely. They 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 outdated, and uh, you know that's there's nothing we can do about it other than upgrade it. To do that, we've got to have smart people, you know, in the system that can that can do that. Uh, so. Uh, 
Uh, sorry, uh, my phone just went off. I'm relieved. I thought it was some uh, some kind of pacemaker or yeah. something. I was concerned for your health. No, no, no. no. It's, it's my phone, and I don't know how to turn it off. This. I just tossed no it away. Pro- my good no. wife is not sitting up and she, she's no sorting it out there. Okay, so so that's it. But I also, also want to mention that just recently we've been assaulted by the ocean. By, yes. by some of the biggest waves that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Now, this is nothing to do with, with local infrastructure. So there's something happening uh, out there, you know, in nature itself. And in fact, right now uh, in the in the Cape, we've got these massive floods, and we've also got at the same time snow completely out of season. So, mm. so really, the the, the the systems are quite uh, are quite unusual, quite unsettled. And and uh, to use a technical term, this is uh, called stochastic. There's a stochastic element to it, and stochastic simply means it's unpredictable and because it's unpredictable we get back to our soft infrastructure our soft infrastructure has to be able to cope with the stochastic element because that's the curveball that's the black swan event that comes and turns everything on its head and that's what we are facing in south africa right now the convergence of black swans you know the black swan of the of, of the energy crisis the black swan of the water fail system the black swan caused by the net outflow of of, of capital and you no know, an ultimate the fiscal cliff that is uh, that is relentlessly marching forward. And in order to solve these problems, you've got to have an enormous amount of technical acumen within your leadership structure. So the question is, is our leadership, as we currently know it, technically equipped to deal with these things, yes or no? Oh, well, that's going to be a tough one to I answer. I doubt there's anyone in our leadership who no. knows how to change a tyre. No, exactly. All right, Pumi, last question is yours, and then we've got to let uh, Prof Turton go. We've got some other stuff to get to. Well, I just want to know, Katsi Dam and also Val River, these are two different things, but there was quite, this was a, a feat. When the Katsi Dam project came on stream, it was all, again, joyous, a lot of PR around it. Is that system still holding, Prof? And then the second thing is there's also lots of talk around kind of um, the purifying and cleaning up of the Val River. Is that happening? Are they winning there? Do you know? Okay, so the Katsi Dam is a lovely story because it was conceived as a concept in the 1950s by a gentleman by the name of Ninam Shand, who went on to found an engineering company called Ninam Shand. So it took from 1950 until 1990 uh, to make that thing happen. Uh, that's how long these things take, you know, from concept to actual de- delivery. And there's a lesson there because Katsi Dam was delivered about in the early sort of, let's say, late 90s, uh, early 2000s, and uh, we came fully on stream. And uh, the, the, we should have actually had Polyali Dam coming on stream now. And that was that was delayed by a person named Nomvula Mokonyani, the rainmaker, God bless her soul. Uh, she she delayed it because she tried to hijack the procurement process in order to uh, to milk stuff with some of the funds, and that's why Poly Ali Dam is not online now, but it should have been. But literally, the Lesotho Islands Water Project is one of the most sophisticated interbasin transfer systems, certainly on the continent of Africa, and it was actually world class engineering. That so so it's only where it's only where comrades have have dipped their fingers into the cash flow that uh, that this has been damaged. But the rest of it is very very robust engineering indeed. Mm. All right. Well, Prof, thank you. Your expertise is always invaluable in, in this sort of discussion. And I really, I know that, that you're one of the people who's paying attention to these things and then helping us to understand them. Uh, it's always good to, to tap into you and your, and your incredible knowledge on this, in, in this field and on this subject. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. There we go. Prof Anthony Turton talking water this morning. Water is life. If you don't have water, you're 
<laughs> screwed. Oh. Um, so, talking about screwed, Canton uh, has a few things in his uh, talking points for this morning. But I was just thinking, and there were a couple of comments that kind of jumped ahead of me on this. Why don't we just name like shitty rivers after ANC stalwarts? That'll maybe help people to, you know, both honor the stalwarts in an appropriate way and to remind people on a daily basis of why everything's falling apart because you'll actually smell the decay of what the stalwarts have given us. So I'm thinking rename the Yuxga. I don't know who, what it was named after. Uh, I don't know what the Henops was named after, but let's rename those. Prominent politicians. I'm I'm all for that. Then as it flows past you and it's I, <laughs> I think this process is happening now kind of organically throughout the country because Organically you mean bacterial infection, yes, E. coli. Absolutely. You consider right now that anytime something turns into a shithole, it gets renamed by the ANC in celebration <laughs> of the fact. So I I for one am absolutely delighted. Okay. William Nickel the, the worst interchange road. is the probably worst road. the most hated road in all of Johannesburg right. in terms of the congestion and yes. you know just absolutely the, yeah. yeah so you know naming it after Winnie Mandela I think is is excellent it's a constant reminder of the degradation that has happened under the ANC let's take places <laughs> like Port Elizabeth Kabeha it's, it's now, now <laughs> it's it, a, it sounds it's like you're clearing your throat yeah. Yeah, which does. is very appropriate because it indicates that it's yet another place that has been turned. <laughs> Into a shithole. Yes. Okay. Uh, all of the places that I drive through when I'm traveling from Johannesburg through to uh, the bush, okay, I go through Belfast, which is now um, uh, turned into a shithole and been renamed <laughs> to something else. Leidenberg has also been turned into a shithole and has promptly been given a, a proudly African indigenous name. And, and I think these are all. Leidenberg. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All, all everything's renamed. Yes. Yeah, so I, I watch the renamed. weather and I don't even know where yeah, I am. And, and I can't keep track of it. <laughs> I, don't know. Yeah. I had to find like something on the map that it looks like a mountain range. I don't know what they're talking about. Oh God. <laughs> and the Eastern Cape, of course, every place has been renamed and all of them are falling apart because they have the worst local government of any province. Yes. So good. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. uh, but just going forward, by the way, you know, my um, I'm henceforth always going to refer to. The the uh, the shuttle formerly known as uh, as William Nickel as Stompy Sepe. Ah, so that'll okay. be your contribution. That will be my contribution, and I'll just keep reminding people that yeah. Winnie Mandela was responsible for the death of a boy simply because of the fact that she could, and that this was swept under the carpet as a result of the Codesa negotiations. But you know, consider what it means for that family who still happen to live in the greater Johannesburg area, to have to see that constant reminder of the celebration of the murder of one of their kids. All right. Uh, Congo Chris says he's on to this as well. The sewage <laughs> works. The Gwede Mantashe Waste Management Plant. The Nkosasanazuma Sewage Works. <laughs> That's what we should be doing. So great. I love it. Uh, everybody on this uh, show has good ideas. I think you guys are amazing. All right. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's go to Canada where they applauded in the parliament, the House of Commons, as they call it in Ottawa, they applauded an actual Nazi um, because, you know, they're so woke that they don't know anything about history. So you guys basically know that at the end of the, of the Second World War, 
most of the um, the Nazi gentry, for want of a better word, fled <laughs> to and, South America. And uh, well, and, 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 and some to Namibia. Yeah, no, no, quite right. So a lot of them went to South America. A lot of them ended up in uh, um, in Namibia, and um, the so the U.S. ended up taking lots of scientists. Yes. But there were some, you know, again, SS officer types who were just so um, potentially troublesome that the U.S. was not able to take them in under U.S. law at the time. And so Canada actually became a, a, a place of sanctuary for people who were not prepared to go to South America. And they've been living there now for generations. And the problem that has now occurred is that you've got – this entire generation of leadership that has completely forgotten history yeah. and the the fact that um, a lot of these uh, people who ended up there, they were Ukrainian Nazis, literally. Yeah, and, uh, uh, let's remind people that the, 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 the invasion of Poland was actually guaranteed by Russia when they promised Hitler, von Ribbentrop at the time was his foreign minister, they promised Hitler that they would not provide a problem for him on his eastern flank if he decided to go into Poland. So on September the 1st, uh, 1939, Hitler was assured that when he blitzkrieged over the border to Poland, Russia was going to be friendly to him should he reach that border, or at least that they weren't going to come at him from the other side. They were then very much the enemy, but of course they rehabilitated themselves during that time, invasion of Berlin being the end of the Nazi empire, well, and but, Russia but was you, then no, an ally. You're absolutely right. But the interesting point in terms of what Germany did at the time was that they lied. So they, they had actually signed a non-aggression pact with the Russians, yeah. but the entire thing was was a lie. And then the documents in terms of, of Lebensraum, you know, uh, which was the, the underpinning of the entire Nazi ideology, the idea was that the Germans would eventually march into the Caucasian part of, uh, of Russia and displace all of the Slavs and push them across to um, the far side of the country where they would become effectively slave labor. And that was uh, the Nazi plan. But, the but, but, but anyone who fought against Russia from the Ukraine would have been on the side of Germany at the time. Absolutely. Yes, yes very much so. But but uh, but uh, let's also make the very specific point that, again, people forget about history repeating itself because remember that there was the Minsk Accords that were signed mm. with regard to the status of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And again, the Germans... And nuclear proliferation. Yes. And again, the Germans came out, and this in the form of Angela Merkel, who admitted, now actually, the Minsk Accords, we signed it, um, it, it was a lie. We had no intention of carrying it out. It was actually a delaying tactic to allow us to arm Ukraine to be able to fight Russia. So this entire process of Russia being lied to over the years, and the thing is that— Has now borne consequences. Yes, but the Russians have never forgotten. So at the point at which the Russians were saying, we want to denazify Ukraine, that literally was the case because of the fact that uh, Stefan Bandera, who was— um, uh, shall we say the Nazi in chief on on the part of the uh, and of everybody Ukraine. was uh, at the time they were saying this is a conspiracy theory this is nonsense it's uh, it's hyped up it's yes. me- meant to make uh, you know a very very obviously binary situation complex yes. and, and difficult to understand but you can go back and look at the Guardian you can look at the New York Times and they had been writing going back ten years ago about Ukraine's Nazi problem mm. and suddenly when this war started all of that actually just got swept under the rugs. Now, so anyway, Zelensky's now in North America. <laughs> this is this brings up the conversation 
and brings it to the point where we're at. So uh, Zelensky is doing a is whirlwind tour there? of North America. Uh, he's, he's just stopped off in Canada. And while he was there, this is what happened in the Canadian Parliament. They, they then cheered and clapped and uh, celebrated a, an, a Nazi, a former Waffen-SS officer who at the age of 98 stood on the gallery at the, uh, at the House of Commons and got a standing ovation from all these dumb Canadian politicians who don't read history books because they're not interested in reading anything longer than a page or two. Uh, and this is, what you, this is what it gets you. This is what the, the, the ignorance of not reading history books gets you, applauding Nazis. Well, the, the useful thing is that Zelensky has been pretty much getting a cold shoulder wherever he's been going now. And you see, every indication is that the U.S. is now getting ready to dump him. Which is something that you know you we've, think so? we've talked about. Do you think so? Case. Yes, absolutely. They're getting ready to dump him. They I get, mean, Biden keeps on ratcheting it up. He no, certainly no, no, doesn't he, talk about he ending. He actually it. isn't, because mm. if you look in terms of the stuff that he's been saying recently, we're going to be there till the end. No, no, no. That that narrative has now gone. The the for, as long as it takes, narrative has now completely fallen off. So that used to be the thing. Okay, now the narrative is that we've given Ukraine all of the weapons that they need in order to fight this war, and it's up to Ukraine to now be taking it forward. Hmm. There's purportedly a shipment of, of Abrams tanks that are now going to be sent across there. But it, it's Didn't Poland also yeah. just say that they're not going to be uh, giving all their prize artillery yeah, absolutely. to the Ukraine yeah, yeah. anymore? Uh, uh, Poland has... Uh, so, but remember, if this narrative is now coming from the other NATO countries, it means that's because the U.S. has now given permission to these countries mm -hmm. to start uh, pushing that narrative. So, And already you've got a situation where all of those states that are bordering Ukraine are saying, actually, we're not going to be taking any grain from Ukraine whatsoever. But so, you also mm -hmm. cannot look at it in isolation because if you consider that the U.S., like us, are in the election season, mm -hmm. this too... And it's is, hugely is it, unpopular, this whole Ukraine. This whole Ukraine situation is hugely unpopular in America. And because of that, you know, the, the, everybody's hedging their bets going into an election year. For the same reason that we get the roads painted, they get the right noises. Well, made. <laughs> uh, also, if, if it comes down to a decision on one candidate being pro a war in Ukraine and the other one being anti should it be Trump and Biden? We know which way they'll fall on that. Yeah. They are, they're asking for a loss on the pro-war situation Listen, side. I was By in the a way, meeting I, I, on Tuesday. Sorry, I, just, I heard this this week too, which informs part of this conversation as well, that apparently America is paying small businesses to keep them going. They're paying for seeds for farmers in the Ukraine. Yes, they're absolutely They're paying for right. emergency services in the Ukraine. All the firemen, all the policemen, all of the, the medics – in the Ukraine are being paid for by American taxpayers. Yes, they're funding the entire Ukrainian government, basically, the, all, all of this. Can you imagine being a U.S. taxpayer? I mean, we get annoyed when our caters... With all of the problems they our, are our facing. Our dip in. The American economy is not handling things well. Joe Biden's approval ratings on the economy among Democrats and Republicans is 26% at the moment. You really think Americans are going to want to keep on dishing out money to the Ukraine? Well, New York City alone has now calculated that over the next three years, they're going to be needing to spend a billion dollars to house all of the illegal migrants that have pitched up in the city. So they've got a lot of problems. Yeah, so it's a billion dollars simply there. We've got literally tens of thousands 
of people crossing the every US day. southern border every single day. And and we know why that's happening. It's because it's vote rigging, because you don't have to show ID when you vote in the US. Even and, if it isn't yeah. that, even if we take the uh let's say let's say slightly more complementary view that it's really just to have cheap labor to keep the economy going. <laughs> Because that's it's also cheaper. part of it, it's, right? Yes, but it's, che- it's cheap labor. Well, labor. It's, it's, it's but, a- but, take, but take this view that the cheap labor in order to keep the economy uh, growing has always been there. You used to have seasonal laborers that would go across primarily from Mexico because all of California's um, uh, harvesting actually required that labor. And babysitting. But, yeah, but that process had actually flowed you know, uh, pretty much for the past 50, 60 years without any issue whatsoever. No, very much the case that's happening right now is this is entirely in order to crook the books ahead of so how does this next affect uh, Canada? I'm, I'm still curious. We've got to get back to Canada. Well, point. that border is still... Uh, they don't get that far north because remember what's been happening now. They no, cross, no, I'm not talking about it, the, the migrants to Canada. I'm talking about the Ukraine, Ukraine. situation and because, no, you but, know, but Zelensky, Zelensky and uh, Trudeau have been like... Uh, Look, I think Trudeau right now is kind of desperate because his ratings have actually been plummeting. And what we're also seeing now is, you know, in exactly the same way as we see a fracturing between the red states and the blue states in uh, in the U.S., we're now seeing a fracturing in Canada that's now starting to entrench itself between the Francophone side of Canada and the Anglophone side of Canada. And no one's talking about that yet. Where does Trudeau find himself in that? Well, the interesting thing right now is that the conservatives, who are uh, are basically Trudeau's Polyevre, uh, yes, um, uh, are are basically doubling down on you know the need to uh, to secure some type of Canadian identity and um, and effectively get rid of all of the rubbish that <laughs> Trudeau has brought in uh, for the longest time. But no one, will, guys, no, no one know, in this show will cry about that. Yeah, but uh, but let's not forget other stuff that's happening in other parts of the world right now that that also ties in with the overall collapse of the U.S. So you've got um, recent attempts at regime change that happened in Georgia, which very quickly got uh, uh, stomped out, and they've now got a process in place there to try and remove their pro-U.S. president. You've had the stuff that went down uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the past couple of weeks. I don't know if you guys have been following it. No, I'm afraid Armenia and Azerbaijan don't don't make my top 10 of things I care about this (laughs) week. Yes, but effectively what's happened is that in Armenia, you've got a uh, pro-U.S. president. Well, he's in fact a a close personal friend of Soros and is funded by Soros. Oh, nice. And and you've got Ngorokarabakh, which is part of uh, Azerbaijan. But it's a predominantly Armenian part of Azerbaijan. And they, for the longest time, have effectively conducted themselves as a independent state, much in the way that the Donbas in Ukraine is predominantly Russian and therefore has conducted themselves. And let's as, bring it home, much like uh, how golf estates tend to manage themselves outside of the municipalities. That's, that's, so that. it's, it's a very accurate uh, yeah. accurate description. Right. So, But what's happened now is that the pro-U.S. Armenian uh, uh, leader has now said to the people of Ngorokarabakh, sorry, you guys are on your own. So... Um, Azerbaijani troops have marched in, and so it's now going to be pretty much absorbed into um, uh, Azerbaijan properly, uh, and you're going to find a mass exodus of Armenians from there back into Armenia itself, and it, it's it's a shitstorm of note. 
So there are all of these uh, proxy wars <laughs> that the U.S. is still continuing to fund in various parts of the world. Biden is absolutely unchecked in um, in actually pushing this out uh, all over the place. And they are really desperate to prevent Trump being elected. So right now, the only thing that's going to actually allow for free and fair elections in the U.S. next year is if you actually have the U.S. Supreme Court saying you must have ID in order to be able to vote. And right. that's going to be an interesting one. I was in a conversation on Tuesday with someone in Washington and was quite interested to hear all of the machinations on the ground in the U.S. And, of course, you know, they do lots of polling all the time. And that almost across the board, the polls are showing that Donald Trump is at least 10 points ahead of Biden across the board. And that includes this independents and Democrats. Mm. Includes independents and Democrats, Jesus. as we can see wow. him surging ahead in the primaries in the in the Republican Party. Not deterred. No. As yesterday, a new indictment, right, on Donald Trump. So But do we not is, see do we not see a decline in his support among independents, especially when he's indicted, when he's charged? No. If he's sentenced. What we do see... Is that is not going to affect him, him? You don't think it'll affect things? You know how it does affect him, any of those things? It affects his pockets in that he makes so much more money. He collects so much more contributions to his campaign funds every single time. One of those new charges, are a That's new indictment. Right. He, he goes is, out. He, he goes just out, goes out. He, goes he out sends out, out an email yeah. and he gets more money mm-hmm. in. So if, if they are so desperate to prevent him from even running in this election. They don't even want the election to take place with him as a candidate. And you've yes. heard this. You're hearing it now but as a mainstream also, opinion on the do, left. But they also don't... Uh, I mean, <clears throat> How look, far will they go? Look, Biden's a dead man walking. Let's be very clear yeah, about course. this. Okay? He's tripping <laughs> he over his... Asleep at the, 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 he's, he's falling asleep the whole time. He's tripping over his feet every single day. Right? In, mm. in fact, right now, there's a White House He's detail. a husk. He's a carcass. Yeah. But at the same time, they're not going to consider a situation where... Uh, one of the other front runners, like you know Kennedy, for example. They, no, no, they, no, no. They they've, they've railroaded to, him. Yeah, they've, they've railroaded him. They're desperate to keep him out of there. So what's probably going to happen is they they're looking at Gavin Newsom, but it's going to be really hard to sell Gavin Newsom to the rest of the country. So I strongly suspect Michelle that you, Obama. It's going to be Michelle they're Obama. They're going to parachute her in last minute. At the last minute, yes. It'll get a whole bunch of Dems very excited because <laughs> ooh, first black woman president. Yep. She's uh, politically very, very far to the left. It may mobilize and galvanize some people. Do you think she could uh, she could beat Trump decisively? <laughs> I have no idea at this stage, because, like I said, you know, the books have been actually crooked in the U.S. because of the fact that you have these, you know, hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants that are being put into the swing states, in particular, and they will effectively vote Democrat when the elections come around next year. So at that level, um, the U.S. doesn't have a fair elective system. I mean, consider that in our country, okay, we're the friggin' third world, and, you know, we actually manage elections reasonably well. Yeah. Okay. We we pitch up with uh, with ID. We checked against a voter's role. Yes. And and we get to cast our vote. <laughs> and you know, in the U.S., no, you just pitch up out there and 
you get you know shepherded through. No, and, sometimes uh, you just get a ba- yeah, ballot sent to your house. Yes, you, you get it mailed to your house, and you could sometimes you get two by mistake. Yep. Yeah, you uh-huh. Africans must be watched closely. Uh-huh. Mm. Can't be trusted yes. with such important things yeah. and, and, as uh, voting. You know, so Shemana. you know the US. The US wants to give Zimbabwe <laughs> a hard time checked. over their elections. Yes. <laughs> now, actually, you know, the Zimbabwean elections were far more free and fair than the US uh-huh. elections were. I'll say that without hesitation. Uh huh. All right. Well, here we go. So. It's going to be uh, perhaps if, if Biden like totally collapses and they can't keep him on <laughs> machines, it could I be so. the, the big orange man bad versus big Mike. Look, I think we're close to the stage right now where one can actually create an AI generated virtual Joe Biden. And on the assumption that he doesn't have to walk in public and but be even, seen no, but kissing babies. No, but, no, no. But the, I mean, shine, the, the shine has come off. Like Joe Biden, he ran in, <clears throat> he ran as the antidote to Trump and he was this kindly old man. That was certainly what they tried to propose, his, his personal, uh, friendly, gentle, thoughtful, let's go back to the old ways. That was the Biden that they sold to the American public in 2020. That's not the Joe Biden that emerges now. It's a deeply corrupt, completely mentally senile uh, husk of a human being who's basically being pushed around by Jill and a bunch of other people who we don't know. And he's got a son who's like the world's biggest cokehead and brings suitcases of money from the world's most corrupt regimes. The shine's off of Biden. Do they really even want to keep him alive anymore? Well, but he wants to be there because remember the I don't only think way he knows he, where he is already. Yes, but the only way he can prevent his son going to jail <laughs> is by continuing to be president so that he can pardon everyone. Yeah, well, I'm 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 all for it. <laughs> I'm here to watch this one. <laughs> I, I'm in the front row. Bring on With the big bad orange man grabbing pussy and bring on Big Mike. And let's see if he can grab that. That would be interesting to watch. What a show. Oh, man, what a show. It's a good time to be alive. And meanwhile, on our continent, guys, just a reminder that, you know, Ghana's economy is uh, is tanking spectacularly. They've uh, effectively bankrupt. They've had to take a $3 billion loan. Ghana was our shining star for a little while. It was. We used to talk about it in very glowing Uh terms on this show. Okay. Uh, Nigeria, meanwhile, is tanking spectacularly under uh, Tinubu. And remember that... Uh, he was trying very hard to try and start a war in Niger. Yeah, and, and so, don't forget Egypt while we're on disaster basket cases at the moment. <laughs> so at least our three biggest comp- competitors are also being taken out at the knees yes, and but not e- continuing Egypt, to run ahead of us. By so. the way, Egypt is also looking to start a war with Ethiopia. Yes, over, okay, over, over water. Over, over water, yeah. So that, you know, we've come full circle again in terms of what's <laughs> happening here. Thank you to uh, our guest, Prof. Anthony Turton. Thank you to Pumi. Thank you to Canton. Thank you to you, most especially, for being here. I don't think there was a moment where we didn't uh, have to consider some very important stuff during the course of this burning platform today. There was no bullshit here. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. Bye-bye.